0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor.
1: And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Friday the 17th of September 2021. And before we get on to today's topic, we've got a bit of an announcement.
0: That's right. We're having a week off, folks. We love you very much and we love keeping you informed, but we are tired. So we're just going to have a week off and we'll be back in your feed on the 27th of September. But before that, let's make an episode of CoronaCast, Norman. Yeah. So we we were talking about vaccine milestones recently, yesterday, and Victoria has reached its own vaccine milestone. They've passed the 70% first dose in people aged 16 and over, which is fantastic. We don't know what's going to happen from the double 70% threshold that they're looking looking to reach in the next few weeks, but they have sort of uh, signposted some restrictions that are going to start to ease. And I guess my question more broadly about Victoria and New South Wales and all of these other places is now that we're starting to see people come out of lockdown because of vaccination rate, do we always just keep stepping forward on this road? that the roadmap is always based on? it, Or is there a chance that we're going to have to go backwards in our journey with COVID?
1: It's a really important question uh, whether we'd have to do U-turns or partial U-turns moving forward. If you take the Doherty modelling, they don't suggest very much opening at all at 70% and judicious opening at 80% because if you don't have good contact tracing or effective contact tracing, then that's a problem in their model and they suggest that you do actually go back into lockdown maybe 30% of the time in certain areas where you're going to have problems, particularly with hospitalisation. It's an open question, but it depends on particular variables, which is really a lot of it's to do with how effective the vaccines are at preventing infection.
0: Right. And so that's something we've talked about a bit on this show recently, which maybe is 50% of people who are vaccinated could potentially catch the virus. But there's other uh, data circulating that says it might actually be a much stronger protection than that.
1: Yeah, Professor Greg Dorr, and and partly I think in response to uh, the 7.30 story the other night that we ran and mentioned on Coronacast says that if you look at the New South Wales data, publishes a table on that, basically he shows data that suggests that vaccination does prevent infection to quite a significant extent. For example, at a time when maybe 30-odd percent of the community was vaccinated, you would expect maybe 16 to 20 percent would be getting infected if it was a 50 percent protection, whereas it's only 2.5 percent. So that suggests a greater effect of the vaccine than people are publishing. Now, if that's true and real, there's all sorts of conditions you can apply to that those data, then it's great it does mean that we'll get more protection and therefore we may be less likely to see very significant surges. That would be fantastic. But if we see a very significant surge after opening at 70% and our hospitals look as though they're overwhelmed, there's going to be very little alternative for the government but to lock down again.
0: And then the other thing that we've been talking about recently was the idea of booster shots and whether they're going to be required. Uh, and the Israel data that we've mentioned a couple of times has actually been published now, peer reviewed.
1: Yeah, it's published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it just shows that. And after a third booster shot with Pfizer, you're actually getting quite impressive protection against infection, severe disease. And in case you think that's a small study, it's actually 1.1 million people aged over 60.
0: Okay. So that's Pfizer. What about other vaccines?
1: Well, a, st- a study published uh, this week in Science Magazine, which is a top journal internationally of Moderna, a low dose of Moderna. Moderna's got quite a high dose of mRNA. This is a low dose. And just short summary of this study, showed really quite a profound immune response to Moderna that looks as though it's long lasting. And if that's true, then the need for booster shots may vary according to the type of vaccine you've had. We're just got to see how that evolves, but it may be that Moderna, you're less likely to need a booster. Maybe even with Astra, you're less likely to need a booster than Pfizer. And maybe with Pfizer, you're less likely to need a booster if you had your second dose eight weeks after the first, All sorts of variables here that we've got to take into account.
0: While we're talking about research, let's stay in the journals because we've talked a lot about vaccines. We've talked a little bit about treatments. Uh, Remdesivir was a treatment that was being bandied about a lot earlier in the pandemic. We haven't heard quite so much about it recently, but there's a new study coming out saying it's not as effective as we really wanted it to be.
1: No, it it is being used. It's used in Australia um, as part of a combination of treatments and ICU Physicians here feel that it does work, but this, this, this article, which is um, a, a trial of remdesivir in quite severely ill people, showed no clinical benefit.
0: So Norman, like we said, we are taking a week off and we get so many questions from our beautiful audience that it feels only right that we should answer as many as we can today before we leave them bereft with their podcast feeds for a week. Uh, Campbell's asking, how long will it be until a person with COVID doesn't need to isolate for 14 days minimum, but instead deals with it like someone with the flu where you just stay home until you're not snotty anymore?
1: Well, it's a factors here. One is immunization levels. So if immunization levels get really high, like to 90% or so, particularly of the over 12s, then there there's probably less need for isolation, although you would be worried about children catching it in large numbers. And the other time that that's going to happen is when the virus becomes endemic which means it's there circulating in the community on a regular basis with a reasonable level of immunity either through vaccination or infection or both and you don't get outbreaks to the extent that you get in an epidemic or pandemic situation you might have the occasional year where you have a bad a bad situation with a new version of the virus but largely When it becomes endemic, there's a lot of it circulating and we're kind of used to it and it doesn't cause the severe disease that it used to.
0: Mike's actually asking about that very word endemic. Um, He said, you know, yeah, okay, it's about the disease isn't in an outbreak form. But um, he says that he's heard that the word endemic can be defined as something that is consistently present but limited to a particular region. And the question is, how could COVID become limited to a region?
1: That's true. That is the definition, but it could become endemic in Australia and not for a while in Africa, for example, because they're not as vaccinated as we are, and therefore they are more exposed to the epidemic situation of outbreaks.
0: And a question on lockdowns and mental health. And this person saying, I wonder if the link between lockdowns and mental health is more complex than people seem to consider. This person isn't so much concerned about lockdowns themselves, but more with others not taking it seriously, saying that it's frustrating for them to see people with it not wearing masks properly or walking too close, and makes the point that lifting lockdowns before COVID's well controlled might only increase stresses and Uh, Anxiety.
1: I think the, the nail that you've hit on the head there is the complexity of our psychological responses to this pandemic and it's not just isolation and lockdown, it's thwarted ambition, thwarted education, thwarted job prospects and the chronic stress of not knowing where this virus is and feeling that you might be exposed to the actions of others. So it is incredibly complex and not necessarily relieved totally by relieving lockdowns.
0: Evie's asking, these vaccines have emergency approval. What else needs to happen for them to become fully approved and how long will that take?
1: Well, it took a while in the United States for Pfizer to receive full approval and they are looking at longer term data to ensure safety. But they had that data for quite a while. We've got that data here. So it's not, a, it's not entirely clear why, for example, the Food and Drug Administration took so long to give full appro- approval to Pfizer, for example, and they were heavily criticized for being slow about it. We've got more data about these vaccines than we've had about any, for any medication or any vaccine in history. Billions of doses given, quite closely monitored.
0: And Cole's asking, has any research been conducted to determine the difference in vaccine reactions between males and females? It has
1: been, particularly in the clinical trials. And it was suggested that Pfizer, for example, the immediate reaction that you get with Pfizer, is worse in women than in men.
0: Just the muscle soreness and tiredness that you get?
1: Yeah, that's right. And particularly after the second dose. The clotting problem in Astra is supposedly worse in women than men. And the heart inflammation in Pfizer is worse in men than in women. So there is some emerging evidence of of variation.
0: And there's also some more research that's looking into that. um, There's a group of of experts, international experts, that are looking into reports of menstrual changes after COVID vaccinations because that's something that was being reported anecdotally but hasn't been well studied yet, even though it seems to be pretty transient and and not a, a big problem at this stage.
1: Yeah, and when they've traced this back, it started with anti-vaxxers putting this out and trying to link it to the mythology of uh, fertility problems, which there's no evidence of. So this is still a a controversial um, issue.
0: Well, that research will probably hopefully help put that to bed. And one last question um, from a parent of a son who's 15 months old never been sick. And this parent's worried about what's going to happen when lockdown lifts. They've heard the hypothesis that COVID-19 doesn't affect children much because they have encountered a lot of colds. But this little boy hasn't encountered any colds in his short life yet.
1: I think it's not got anything to do with that. I think it's got to do with kids, young kids' immune systems and responding differently to the virus and being less likely to overreact to this virus. So I think it's irrespective of whether a child's had common colds or not. That was an early theory. I think kids in general just have different functioning immune systems which are less likely to produce the problem. So just remember, the serious problems with COVID-19 arise from an overreaction of the immune system. And in the vast majority of kids, that doesn't happen.
0: Well, that's all the questions I've got for us today, Norman. And that's it for Coronacast for a week. We'll be back on the 27th of September, as we promised. Uh, If you have questions or comments in the meantime, go to abc.net.au slash coronacast.
1: And we promise, no U-turns. We'll be back.
0: (laughs) See you then.